0: head now and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14. And we'll have a slide that'll come up that'll tell you the page number in the Pew Bible there if you want to use that, or if you're using your phone and you use the Version Bible app, that'll take you, these instructions will take you right to the Scripture for this morning. As you're turning there, we through this season of Lent that I just described to you, we're going to be continuing our study of the Gospel of John. Pastor John uh, excellently took us through the first half of the Gospel of John by talking, taking us through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do during Lent is we're actually going to focus on an extended conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in the latter part of the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17. This is actually formally known as Jesus's farewell discourse. And if you haven't looked at it in a long Time or maybe ever, it's typically a section that we kind of skim over during Holy Week on Thursday night before Good Friday. But for the next few weeks, I'm going to provide. Uh, here's what I'm going, to, I'm going to provide: a brief overall summary of Jesus's teaching in each of these chapters, and then I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to narrow in on a particular theme for us to consider in our walk with Christ today. And as you're getting there to John 14, I just want to kind of set the table for you by asking you this question. How do we make a journey when we don't know the destination? You know, if I said to all of us right now, let's go. For most of you, before you started to move, you'd likely ask, well, where are we going? I mean, how many of you would go on a trip without knowing the destination? There's a couple of you I know, but most of us, yeah. And I know who you are too. I know exactly who you are. For most of us, we're not going to go on a trip unless we know the destination. I mean, put it more, more simply. How can we go somewhere we've never been before without an address? These are the questions that really are at the heart of our passage today. And if you've gotten there, if, you, if you're open to chapter 14, you'll notice something. You'll notice we've come into the middle of a conversation that Jesus has already started with his disciples. So before we dive into it, let me catch you up on what's happened so far. Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. They've just celebrated the Passover feast. Jesus has shocked his disciples when in the middle of that meal, he got up, disrobed, and then proceeded to wash each of their feet. In essence, reversing roles as he, their master, began to humbly serve them. Then at the end of the meal, the end of the Passover feast, Jesus institutes a new meal. As he breaks bread and passes around a cup of wine, Jesus points to these elements as being his body and his blood, reflecting the sacrifice he will make, not just for them, but for all the world. And if that wasn't enough, in the midst of these astounding experiences that are taking place, Jesus also has said some pretty disturbing things. The disciples have just learned that one of their own is a traitor. And after Jesus says this, they witness Judas disappear into the night. Then Jesus adds, where I'm going, none of you can follow. And when Peter pipes up and says, yes, I can. I will follow you, Lord. Jesus turns to Peter and warns him that he's going to swear. Peter is going to swear up and down three times. He doesn't have any association with Jesus at all. This is where we're coming into the conversation. And, and as you can imagine the scene, the tension and anxiety in the room are palpable. Palpable. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's like a family meal, right? Where things get awkward really fast. One person says something, another person's like, everyone gets that deer in headlights look, right? And no one says anything. This morning, as we pick up the conversation, Jesus breaks the stunned and awkward silence of the moment by saying these words Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Okay, so here Jesus, into the fear, the confusion, the uncertainty of his disciples, he, he calls them, he calls those who would follow him to have faith. Trust me, Jesus says. And then he adds, I, I'm not leaving to go ahead and have you wait for me. You know, have you go to, I'm not going ahead to wait for you to catch up with me at the end of the road. Jesus says, no, my departure is specifically for your benefit. It's to prepare a place for you. And then Jesus reinforces again, he's not abandoning his disciples. As he mentions, he goes to do this work, but he's doing it so that they can be where he is. And as Jesus promises to come back and bring them home with him, he assures his followers, you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is trying to give in this moment his disciples a little direction. But Thomas interrupts, asking something probably all the disciples are thinking too. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So, how can we know the way? Thomas asks a legitimate question, right? If one doesn't know the destination, how can one know the route to take? If we don't have the end point of the journey, how can we trust that the directions will get us there? Thomas is looking for clarity. To which Jesus redirects the question. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas wants a destination, right? Thomas wants a destination. But Jesus here doesn't point to a path. A series of steps or rules to follow. Jesus doesn't pull out a map with stages of enlightenment or pillars of faith to mark off one's progress. Thomas is fixated on the location of the Father's house. But instead, you notice it, Jesus points to our relationship Himself. Jesus declares He is the way, He is the truth, and the life. And then Jesus points to His Father. And then himself, knowing Jesus, knowing the Father, are the only directions the disciples need. But then Philip interrupts, speaking again, not just for himself, but for the rest of the disciples, when Philip says, okay, (laughs) this is great, this is great, Lord, this is great, but just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Did Philip not just hear what Jesus said? Was he not paying attention to what Jesus has been saying since his first day on the job? No, Philip Philip wants direct access, right? No, Philip says, look, no more middleman. Let us just see the Father for ourselves and we'll be good to go. But Philip doesn't get it. To know Jesus is not only to know the Father, but Jesus has just said it. It's to have seen the Father. And it's, this is the point where it becomes clear in the conversation. Even the disciples don't fully understand who Jesus is. And you can't help but hear a little bit of hurt or disappointment in Jesus' response when he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then Jesus goes on to say again, he is in the Father and the Father is in him. This is something he's repeated throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus throughout this Gospel presents a relationship of such intimacy with the Father that they are in total sync with each other. They are in such a perfect communion of relationship. One way to think of it is Jesus is the mirror image of the Father. And what's great, what's amazing in this chapter, if you still have those Bibles open, is what Jesus does next is he goes on to talk about how this relationship of unity shared by the Son and the Father is the one we were created for. It's the kind of life Jesus came to invite us into and to make possible for us. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you because I live you also will live, and catch this, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And then Jesus goes right to the next place of explaining how we can experience this life that he envisions for us. And you'll notice if you're looking at it, and I've isolated a couple of them on the next slide, he makes this explicit association repeatedly, five times, between love and obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. I love the Father, and just as the Father commanded me, so do I to you. Now, this is the part in the conversation where if we're not careful, if we're not really paying attention right now, if we're just doing a cursory reading or half listening, we could hear Jesus repeat these things five times and we could walk away from this conversation and hear from Jesus nothing more than a checklist of to-dos, a set of conditions that we have to meet, steps we have to take in order to enter into this life that Christ intends for us. But I want to come back to where we started because this frames everything else. Remember, Jesus has made it clear with his opening words here, this is about a relationship. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship initiated by the grace of God. It's about a relationship made possible by the work of Jesus. It's not primarily about what we can accomplish on our own. The disciples have already demonstrated here, they're clueless. They don't have the capacity to go, to even know where to go, how to follow in terms of what Jesus is laying out for them. This is not about what we have to do in order to enter into this life. To reinforce this, Jesus in this conversation introduces a new member of the divine family to them. When he goes on to say, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. What's happening here is Jesus is anticipating, he's promising the arrival in the the arrival of the advocate or what he calls the spirit of truth, what we know as the Holy Spirit. And as we go on in these conversations over the next few weeks, much later, Jesus is going to more explicitly declare that this relationship of unity shared by the Father and himself and the Son includes the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the means for us to enter into this unity, into this life. It's the Spirit's relationship with us which by extension is being part of the family, right? Part of the communion of the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus points to, the Spirit as our means to be able to follow him and to enter into the life that he has to offer us. He goes on here and says, The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. This is a, a really a pivot point here in this conversation. What we need to hear, because we are doers, is that Jesus is laying out that the Spirit is what's key. The Spirit enables us to understand what we could not otherwise comprehend. When we, like the disciples, don't listen very well or just plain forget, the Spirit takes the words and the works of Jesus and reminds us of them. Even more than this, as Jesus will develop, the Spirit teaches us all things by filling out our understanding of what Jesus said as well as as equipping us to follow Christ by doing what Jesus did. So when Jesus talks five times and makes this connection between love and obedience in this chapter, and he'll, say, he'll repeat this concept again, the key is Jesus is the one who models the connection between love and obedience. Jesus is the one who builds the bridge between love and obedience so they're not mutually exclusive, but instead flow into and out of each other. So when Jesus calls us to love and obedience, he isn't telling us what to do as much as he's telling us how to be. Because you see, the love that leads to obedience that Jesus talks about here is the result of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making their home with us. He even refers to it that way in this chapter. What I'm getting at is participating. It's participating in the union of the Father, Son, and, and the Son through the Holy Spirit. It's that participation that the way of Jesus, that love that leads to obedience, comes out of us. We, we often get it backwards you know on our own, when we talk about love and obedience, we typically obey in order to prove we love, right If you, if you obey, then you prove that you love and it 's very easy, therefore, to hear that 's what Jesus is saying here. But what Jesus is talking about is a love that leads to obedience, not out of, out of obligation or duty, but a love that leads to obedience, out of desire, out of being in unity with the heart and will of the Father, the spirit will bring us into this place of unity where we will love not as a way to prove ourselves, not as a way to show our love, but our obedience will come out of a desire, out of the love that we already have because we are in tune with the heart of the Father, the will of God. Abiding, that's what's so key. And Pastor John's going to build on this next week. Abiding in the love that God has for us. Abiding in that love. We love one another, not again for the sake of compliance. We love one another as an extension of God's love for the world. And what's crazy, I mean, it's so easy to miss this. Verse 12, if those Bibles are still open, is notice what Jesus promises us here in the context of saying it's not about us, it's about the Spirit. It's not about what we do, but it's about being in the Spirit. Jesus in verse 12 says we're not just going to be coached by the Holy Spirit. We're going to be transformed. Look at this. The Spirit that teaches us how to love and spurs us on to obedience will not only enable us to mirror the work of Christ, to reflect what Jesus has done, but Jesus says we will be empowered by the Spirit to deepen and widen the tapestry of Jesus' reach by going beyond what we read in the Gospels to do what Jesus says are even greater things. Now, that's going to cause you to just stop and say, wait a second. How is that even possible? That's crazy. How is it possible that we could do greater things than what we read about in the Gospels? Because Jesus has told us it's not about what we do. It's about what the Spirit can do in and through us. And you may go, well, what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is not about the things that we do, but it's about the Spirit coming in us. And when we yield to the Spirit's presence in our life, instead of being preoccupied with fear, instead of being overwhelmed with worry, instead of being enslaved by pride, we can be set apart. We can be opened up by the Spirit and become bold and courageous through a new posture of faith, hope, and love. All those things that we're unable to do on our own, right? All these things that we hear Jesus talk about, and so many of us are like, man, (laughs) that just seems out of my league. And it is out of our league. All those things we can't do on our own in our own willpower that Jesus says we will be able to do. Love our enemies. Forgive those who've wronged us. Embrace those who are different than us. Being open rather than closed to share with those in need. We're gonna receive the freedom and the power to do those things by yielding to the Spirit. By letting the Spirit reign in our lives, by letting the Spirit direct our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. And Jesus adds just the, the cherry on top of the Sunday here when he says, And through it all, this work that the Spirit can and will do in and through us as followers, through it all, in the midst, even in the midst of the struggles, even in the midst of the challenges before us, through the Spirit, through it all, Jesus says, we will have peace. Not the peace of the world. But the peace of Christ, the peace of the world is a timeout in the midst of the conflict, right? That's what the best the peace of the world can be. The conflict goes on and we say, what's that peace? Timeout. And timeout just means we're taking a break and then we're gonna get back to battle. But the peace that Christ gives is the peace that comes when he declares it is finished. It is done. I have won the greatest battle. The peace of Christ is the peace that's born through his absorption of death and the forgiveness of sins that he accomplishes on the cross. The peace of Christ is the peace that that is given to us that before all the fears and troubles of this world, we are filled with a peace that comes from abiding with him. And it's a peace that comes from knowing we are loved. It's a peace that comes from knowing we are enough. It's a peace that comes from knowing we are worthy, we have purpose, we are going somewhere. Have you experienced that peace? Or are you still looking for that peace? That is the peace of the Spirit. That is the peace of Christ. Knowing that you are loved. You don't have to fight for love. You are loved. Knowing that you are enough. You don't have to prove yourself. You are enough because you are created in the image of God. You don't have to to earn or demonstrate your worth. So many of us feel like we have to demonstrate our worth. Again, obey in order to get love. But the peace of Christ is saying knowing you are worthy You are worthy, for I have come for you. I want you, God says through Jesus, knowing you have purpose. So many of us have been convinced whether it's early on we can't find our purpose or we get older and we think we have no purpose anymore. Jesus says your purpose doesn't change whether you don't know what it is or whether you think you're too old. Your purpose is to exist for my glory, to be in fellowship with me, to experience the life that I have for you. You have purpose. Your life is not an accident. And this is not some random journey that we're on. This is not some orchestration of chaos. You can know through the peace of Christ you are going somewhere. We're going somewhere. And how can we know this? Because the peace of Christ is the peace of reminding us again and again, taking us into a deeper awareness that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made by our Father, that we are unreservedly and completely redeemed by the Son. And it's the peace no, of knowing that no matter what the twists and turns, no matter what the bumps and detours as we go, we are being persistently and fully equipped to live the eternal life for which we were created. This is it. This is what's happening here. This is the opening salvo of Jesus' farewell discourse. This is the comfort that Jesus offers to his disciples and offers to you and to me this morning. This is the direction that Jesus tries to give those who would follow him. But the disciples can't hear it. They can't see it. And neither will we, beloved, we won't hear it, we won't see it, if we, like them, are fixated on knowing the destination rather than knowing the way. Rather than knowing the way. I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself, but like the disciples here, much, much, much of my walk with Jesus is preoccupied, gets preoccupied with destinations. Destinations. I want to know where all this is going. I want to know what will be the outcome of my life in Christ. I want to know just how far I need to go each day so I can get where the goalposts are in order to get a win. And I also want to know at the same time each day where the obstacles and the challenges are going to be so I can prepare for them or to be real so maybe I can avoid them altogether. It's so easy. It's so easy to get lost in the questions and the decisions, right, of time, of place, of means. My prayer life, my conversation, the conversations I have with Jesus, they're just like Thomas and Philip. My prayer life, the conversations I have with Jesus can become so predominated by my need for clarification, for direct answers, to access to what lies in the future. When I lift up Beth or my kids or this call at grace or what comes next for me, I frequently interrupt Jesus instead of listening to him speak. I mean, if I'm honest, if I really just really just expose myself, if I'm honest, my prayers, my time in scripture, even when I worship like we're doing this morning, Those prayers, that time in scripture worship, it's less about devotion to Christ sometimes and more about trying to achieve a spiritual shortcut to get to my desired destination. Even godly ones, even ones that I believe are of the Lord, I just want to get the shortcut to get there. Jesus keeps calling me to abide, but I just want to make an appointment with him and get on with my day. To get a move on to where I think I'm going. I say repeatedly that I trust Christ, that I'm putting everything in the Lord's hands, but I find myself saying that while at the same time I'm looking for a more detailed road map or GPS. I don't know if you can relate to any of this. It's just me. But when I'm tempted like this, and it comes a lot, It's crazy when I think about it. When I'm tempted to be more concerned with where Jesus is taking me than where he is right now in my life, in my circle of community, I need to hear, and maybe you do too, what Jesus tells Thomas Chris, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's not about the destination. It's about the way. The way is not a place. People, the way is not a place. When Jesus calls his disciples, when Jesus calls us, he says, Follow me, not meet me over there. Jesus doesn't merely teach us the way or show us the way. Jesus doesn't blaze the trail of salvation, then tell us to pursue his shadow. The Christian life is not thanking Jesus for the directions and then shoving off to follow his footsteps on our own. The way is a person. Jesus is the way. Following Jesus is not necessarily always knowing the path or necessarily knowing the place where we are going. But following Jesus is knowing the one who is with you and for you with every step you take. We do not know the destinations, but we do know the way. It's not about what's next. It's about who goes before us. The one who prepares a place for us, even as he comes back to bring us where he is. I don't know if you caught this, but when Jesus speaks of going to prepare a place for us, he uses this image of a house. But guys, remember, he's talking about a state of relationship. Jesus is not talking about an actual place, some other world beyond death. And that's how most of us hear this. But we've heard this repeatedly in Scripture. Jesus tells us this countless times while he's with us in the Gospels. The house of God, the Father's house, is a building not made with human hands. As Jesus repeatedly declares in the Gospels, the location where the presence of the Lord resides is not a temple in Jerusalem, it's in him. So When Jesus talks about preparing a house, what he's using that image to talk about is the preparation of a relationship. What Jesus prepares for us is a relationship, a new way of relating to God, a new way, no longer separated by our sin, no longer beyond our apprehension. Through his work on the cross and the resurrection, Jesus inaugurates a new possibility for us, a life not apart from God, a life being with God, dwelling in the presence of the Lord. That means we're not left alone to battle through all the storms and valleys that come along in life with only the hope of a grand reunion with our Father on the other side of eternity. And many of us, that's how we're living this life. Jesus has done all this for us. Okay, it's up for us to follow him. Storms and valleys come our way and we'll see our Father on the other side of eternity. Jesus completely blows that understanding apart here. The many rooms in the Father's house that Jesus talks about are not your reserved room in heaven. The many rooms that Jesus talks about when he uses this analogy of a house are the innumerable spaces and moments in this life where we can abide in the Lord's presence now. Even as we anticipate the everlasting life we will share with our creator when all things are made new. Now to that, some of us may ask, or you can think of people in your life may go, well, okay, if God is present with us now, where exactly is God? I mean, how many people today, can you think of them in your mind? Have you been this person? How many people today are still asking like Philip to see God firsthand? You know, how many, have you ever said this? Heard someone says, if God would just show up and show himself to me. I'd have no more doubts or reservations. i believe. I'd follow. For those who are anxious about what's next, for those who find themselves looking for the presence of God in this world, we need to see what Jesus shows to Philip. And what is that again? It's that showing up and making himself known is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's a crazy thing in all cultures and at all times, people have sought God through laws. They've sought God through nature. They've sought God through practices, rituals passed down from generation to generation. In all cultures and at all times, people have heard in some manner the voice or the word of God, whispers of truth, hints of meaning, glimmers of the divine light mediated through the human conscience or some other means of general revelation, But get this, when the word of God, the person of God became flesh in Jesus Christ, the whole truth and nothing but the truth came down to us. Jesus is the way and the truth. Jesus is the truth because Jesus embodies the full gracious self-disclosure of our creator. Jesus, through his life and his death, narrates the faithfulness, the righteousness, and the reliability of God to the world. And as Jesus describes, he and the Father are so perfectly united that no one need look anywhere or listen anywhere else to see and know God. And what that means is all the different directions people have and ever will look for God are meant to be reoriented to the single way that is Christ. And the reason why we struggle to get this is because we still operate in a a paradigm that Jesus tries to reverse for us. We try to engage God by looking for God and making God fit in our box. But the thing is, we don't come to true knowledge of God by human induction. We don't come to true knowledge of God by putting God under our microscope. We come to true knowledge of God, we see God, by looking through the lens of the revelation of Christ. We come to see God and know him by knowing Jesus and following him Not all roads lead to Jesus, but Jesus becomes the way and the truth for all cultures at all times to find and know their creator, to see the Father. And to a world today that is still looking for God, to a world today that looks to encounter the truth that is Jesus in order to see the Father, Jesus, as he will continue to develop in this conversation, The purpose of the Spirit is to give rise to the body of Christ, the church. My friends, God's playbook was never for Jesus to show up in just one place and in one time in history. God's plan always was, always has been for Christ to be revealed in every place and every time in history. But how can that happen? It happens through the spirit, through the body of Christ. The cross is where Jesus is lifted up for all the world to see. But do not miss this. But the church is where Jesus continues to be on the move, reaching to the ends of the earth. If the world cannot see God, if the world cannot see Jesus, then what are they seeing in us, church? Because God's plan is for the world to see God. See him. Jesus' plan is for the world to see him, Christ, through us. Maybe, and I, I am guilty of this, this is a vocational hazard for me. Maybe, instead of trying to position ourselves to fix, to figure out, to position ourselves to figure out where we're going. That's what we're obsessed with these days as the church. We always want to figure out where we're going, how to do church. What if? Yielding to the Spirit, we just boldly followed the way of Jesus and simply be the church. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth and Jesus is the life, the very life of God poured out and offered to humanity. As the firstborn among the dead, Jesus is resurrection life. This life that Jesus offers us, this place that He has prepared for us, is an ongoing relationship of maturing and deepening intimacy and unity with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship that doesn't shy away from the reality of our pain or our losses, but at the same time, it is a relationship that leads us through them, beyond them, into wholeness, abundance, joy. Here at Grace, we have a word for this kind of life, and it's flourishing. I'm understanding that some of you like that word and some of you don't. Get used to it. Because this is the life that God offers us in Christ, a life where we flourish. But hear this, this life of flourishing in Christ, this life of flourishing in Christ is not a life for the strong. It's not a life for the clever. It's not a life for the capable. This life of flourishing in Christ is a pilgrimage for the weak. The incapable, but the teachable, who confess their need for God and lean into the spirit with every step of faith. This life, this resurrection life of Jesus is life we have been called to share. We experience the grace of God so we can extend that grace to others. We are invited into this relationship of deepening love and friendship with Jesus so we can more deeply love and come alongside the people God places around us and introduce them to Christ. When we live that life, our life in Christ, then the people around us won't see us. They'll see Jesus alive and well and in our midst today. My friends, we don't always have the destination, the destination. There is no map for us to see what comes next. Even in the span of each single day that we have before us, we don't know what will happen next. We cannot be sure of what tomorrow brings. We are totally unaware of the limits of the possibilities for our lives, for this world that still lie ahead. And we cannot even begin to imagine or hope for all that God has prepared for those who love him. But have no fear. Let us not be confused. Let our hearts not be troubled because we do know the way, the way that is Jesus And we are invited, we are called not to a place but to a person, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, guys, is enough. Jesus is everything. Jesus is the truth and the life we are looking for. Through the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can follow Jesus, we can become one with Christ, we can always be sure that we're not lost. We can learn how to live life to the full in the peace of our Father's presence until at last we come home to glory. And thanks be to God for that.